Good to see you. Uh, apparently, it's not good to see me. What's, <laughs> what's wrong? I, I took a shower and got cleaned up. And Good to see you guys. Uh, welcome to the bridge again. Glad you're here. Last week, we kicked off a series called Frames. We're looking at the fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church or the doctrinal statements of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, some of this will sound familiar. Some of it um, may not sound familiar uh, because maybe we're saying it a little bit differently. But it's all, uh, it's all what we understand uh, to be the, uh, sp- the statements of our faith that we derive from Scripture Um, And we call them, in this series, we call them frames. And the goal of this series is to make sure that with every frame, every statement of belief, every fundamental belief, we arrive with an image, an image of Christ in every one of these frames. So whether we're talking about what happens when people die, whether we're talking about um, uh, the, the experience of salvation, which is what we kicked off with last week, or if we're talking about baptism, which is what we're talking about today. Hopefully, if we do it right, if we do it well, what you hear and what you you see emerge from that statement of belief, from that fundamental doctrine taken from Scripture, is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you you hear about Jesus, and he is ultimately um, the one that it's all about. That he is the focus of our attention, that everything that we do evolves around him and his, and his powerful message and the powerful message of the good news of the gospel that Jesus came and lived out and demonstrated before all of us. So that's the, the, title, that's the series that we're in. That's kind of where we're going. We're going to jump into baptism here in just a little bit, but pray with me one more time and we'll, we'll dive right in. Father God. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for our family here at the bridge and at the Forest Lake Church. I pray, Father, that your spirit would be present here in this place right now. And where I am unclear, Father, may your spirit make it real clear. And where that image um, doesn't appear in the frame, I pray, Father, that you would would appear, that that you would be seen in that frame, that you would make it clear for all of us here that you are the one that this thing is all about. We thank you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week, like I mentioned, we talked about the statement of faith that has to do with the experience of salvation. So as I'm going back over my message uh, after last week's message in my office, I'm thinking to myself, well, I shared quite a bit about kind of the mechanics of salvation, and maybe I kind of missed the boat when it came to the experience of salvation. So if it's okay with you, I'm actually going to backtrack a little bit and then come forward and then pick up the the, uh, doctrine of baptism. All right, is that all right? Hang with me. I'm going to try and move really fast. And, uh, and you, so you're going to have to hang with me. So we're going to be in the book of Romans. Then we're going to go over to the book of Acts. We're going to come back to Romans. And then we'll be in Ephesians is kind of how it will roll this morning. So um, talking about the experience of salvation, um, but we talked about kind of some of the things that have to do with salvation. Righteousness, sin. Sin is not just behavior that we do, 
but the condition kind of of our hearts and souls and how Jesus comes and he, he changes all that. He gives us his righteousness, which is a, which is a remedy, really, for the predicament that we were in. And that's, that's really, really powerful. But let's talk a little bit more about the experience of salvation. So I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, and I want you to hear this. Romans 5 verse 19 For just as through the disobedience of the one man, we looked at this passage last week. So just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. The wheels came off for all of us when the wheels came off. Things went from uh, bad to worse from Adam and Eve. They also went from bad to really, really, really bad for you and me. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And that second, the one man, that second where it says the one man, is referring to Jesus Christ. It's referring to Jesus So essentially what we're talking about with the experience of salvation is that some point along the way in our journey through this life, our lives intersect or are interrupted about with the reality of Jesus and who he is, but more importantly, what he's done and what that means for me and my life. At some point along in our journey, and you may be there right now, or you may hopefully at some point in the experience of coming to this church, that, that happens for you, where Jesus really becomes very clear, where, where, where his, his message and his character are revealed to you in a very personal way, and, and you respond, and you begin to understand what, what Jesus did. There's, there's this sort of intersection, this interruption of our lives. And actually, in reality, you know what I would call it? I would, I would call it more of an intervention, right? Because yeah, it's, it's more of an intervention. Remember, there were days when in our country we were kind of obsessed with this idea of intervention. And they had reality TV shows. Maybe they still do. I don't really know. Uh, about how people who were going the wrong direction, their lives were a mess. And they were growing into an even bigger mess. And they were going the wrong direction in their lives. And their friends and family would gather around them and try to um, intervene in their lives and hopefully sort of disrupt the chaos in their lives and where they were going and get them back on the right track. And it involved telling them the truth and and kind of demonstrating some some tough love and all that sort of thing. It's an intervention. And the truth of the matter is there's some point with the experience of salvation, You and I wake up to the reality of the fact that, man, I really don't have it all together. And try as I may, and doing all the things that I do, and and, and, and I, I just can't get it all together. Or maybe you're in the boat that's sort of apathetic. You just really don't care. You're just going to do whatever you want to do. And this is my life. I will do it, and I will, I, will, I will make the choices that I will make, and I will have to just live with those. And you're just sort of doing, you don't care. There are times, perhaps, where that describes you. And then something happens. Something, somewhere along the way, man, God intervenes. There's this intervention. I can't describe it. I can't, I can't tell you when it's going to happen for you. All, all we're kind of called to do as pastors is, to, is to, to present the message and to talk about Jesus in such a way that, 
that, in, that hopefully as his spirit moves, he's revealed to you as indeed the one who, who saves and intervenes and the one who can, who can make sense out of this life, the one who can rescue you from the destruction that, that, that you've kind of created and caused in your own life. And, and in those moments, Jesus becomes real for you. And you just, and it, and it, it changes everything. It just kind of messes your whole life up. And in some ways, you're just kind of frustrated with God. It's like, God, if you just leave me alone. I was just doing fine, right? And then God comes in and he, he just kind of intervenes and he messes things up. But in that messing things up, he begins to help you make a whole lot of sense out of life. He begins to bring peace. And you begin to sense this enormous sense of um, of, of, of value and worth and you matter and you are loved and you are accepted and you are forgiven and all of those things are because of the one man Jesus all of those things are because of the one man Jesus so I got to take you to another quick little story in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 so the book of Acts is basically a book about um, post-Jesus. Jesus has left the scene, and now his followers that, that, if you look in the Gospels, he gathered all these followers. He intervened in the lives of all these people, and they began to follow him. They became his disciples, and ultimately, as you get to the book of Acts, they are actually the people who begin to carry forth, to continue to carry forth that message of this Jesus, of this gospel, that he is the one who came back from the dead, resurrected, came back to, to life, and he can bring life to your deadness. He can restore you. He can forgive you. He can make you whole. So they're, they're given this charge to continue that message. That, these are his followers in the book of Acts. And there's this really cool story um, about Peter in the book of Acts. Um, he's one of... Jesus' main followers, one of his main disciples and would be one of his main leaders as he begins to preach in the book of Acts. So there's a story about um, how Peter comes along, Peter and John actually come along and they heal this crippled man. And what a, what a beautiful portrayal, what a beautiful story of, of the gospel too, right? This is an intervention. You and I kind of come to the table, we're kind of, we, we walk with the limp, Right? We do this life with the limb. But here, here these disciples are, and they come in and they intervene and they heal this man. And that causes a bit of disruption because there are religious, there are religious people all around, all around, and they're just a little put out by what these new Christians, these followers of the way, have done. They're just really irritated by this whole thing. And so they confront, uh, they confront Peter and they confront John. And they asked him this question. Um, uh, they say, by, by what power or what name did you do this? This is uh, Acts 4 and verse 7. Um, by what power or what name did you do this? All right? And I love their answer. Listen to this. Remember? It's by the one man. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you here. They didn't make any bones about it, man. They just, they just stood up and said, we declare before everybody here right now, this is not us doing this thing. This is all because of the power of Jesus. That's what, that's what they say. 
And then they, they end this section, um, or Peter continues to talk about it, and he, the, in verse 12, he sort of sums it all up. And it's, in some ways, it's a bit of a controversial passage in our modern times, but nevertheless, it's still profound and important and, and accurate, if you will. So, verse 12, he says, salvation is found in no one else. Talk about the experience of salvation. How do we begin to understand acceptance, forgiveness, grace, eternity? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, the truth of the matter is many of you intersected with religion long before you ever intersected with Jesus. There's a good chance that you may have even grown up in church or at some level, maybe you didn't grow up totally secular, maybe you had a little bit of church, Christmas and Easter were the times that you grew up, or were the time that you went to church when you were growing up, right? So you intersected with religion long before you intersected with Jesus. Some of you grew up in the church, some of you, all you know is church, man, every Saturday you knew you had to put on some clothes that were really, really nice, and you weren't even sure why, but they were your Sabbath clothes, right? Or they were your Sunday clothes, and you just had to go, and you had to sit there for a very long time. And I remember when I would go, I'd try to stretch out in the pew, and my mom would reach over and hit me in the head and say, get up, boy, <laughs> right? I was like, this is when we're supposed to be sleeping, mom, I don't understand. But somewhere along the way, you probably intersected with religion long before you intersected with Jesus. Long before Jesus ever intervened in your life, you probably interacted a little bit with, with, with religion and religious people. And there are a couple of transitions that you make in the experience of salvation. One of those transition is, transitions is you go from religion to relationship. You go from religion to relationship. That isn't to totally dismiss religion. Religion is good. I'm thankful for religion. Religion is, is, is very, very important. It provides an environment a lot of times through, by which Jesus can become very real to us, where God is revealed to us. Hopefully, all the religious stuff that we have around us, our religious schools, our religious services, our religious ministries, if you will, all help us to reveal Christ to people who need to have an intervention by Christ. So it's not that we dismiss religion. It just means that we begin to define our religion by a relationship and not religion defining our relationship. You understand that? Stay with me. So now because I am, I am, I am personally acquainted with this Jesus, I come to know him. He begins to be the one that shapes how I live and do life. He begins the one who, who helps me to make sense of all of the things around me and the way that I, I do life and the way that I experience him. So we make this transition from religion to relationship. I'll give you a little bit of an example. So I've been doing some premarital counseling, and this is actually a while back that I was doing some counseling for one couple. And in this couple, the young woman actually grew up in a fairly secular environment. She didn't, she didn't grow up going to church, putting on the Sabbath clothes or the Sunday clothes and doing all that whole thing. So it's quite foreign to her. Uh, the person that she's going to marry um, grew up very religious, grew up going to church every week, every week. And church was just always prominent in his life. And he 
knew about God and knew about Jesus. Then something happened and God intervened in the young woman's life. And she came to know Jesus. And there was a fire that was lit deep in her soul. It's been really, really powerful to see what it's done. It's just totally transformed her life. Uh, with, but it's interesting that as you look at, at their interaction with one another, because here, uh, the young, the, the, the other part of this soon-to-be marriage um, has always known Jesus, has always interacted with religion. But you can tell there's still, there, there hasn't been quite the, the, the experience of salvation where it's not just religion, it's relationship, and Christ is personally revealed to you. And so there's a little bit of there's a little bit of difference now in the relationship. One bypassed religion altogether and found Jesus and is on fire. The other one has had religion all along and will get to Jesus. In time, God will intervene in his life and he will come to know Jesus personally and it will set him on fire as well. But you see the difference. You see the difference. But the point is. The experience of salvation is primarily when our lives intersect with this Jesus of the Bible, the one who came, and he saves, and he transforms us. Amen? Amen. So let me give you another little bit of a, of a, of a, of a story that helps us to transition into um, our talk about baptism, and we'll get into, we'll go back to Romans in just a second here. Uh, when I was... Um, when I was growing up, I was, a, I, was very, I was into sports, very athletic, but the one sport that kind of settled on me was gymnastics. Um, kind of short, so basketball wasn't, you know, I played basketball, but so you ain't going anywhere there, buddy. So, so, so I played basketball, but gymnastics really was my thing, and I, I had the kind of the build for gymnastics. I, I remember watching, the, I think it was the 84 games in Los Angeles, I think it was, and the men's gymnastics team was just they just really did well that year. They may have even won the gold, if I remember correctly. So I was inspired. So my parents went, signed me up for a gym, and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a Christian, wasn't, definitely wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And um, so I began to prepare to compete. And in my, big, in my big dream, I was like, man, someday I'll go to the Olympics, yay. So I start to train in this gym and train in this gym, and I, I pretty, do pretty good. But what I, what, I, what I learned is we start to do these routines, right? We have to do a high, high bar routine, you have to do rings, and you have to do floor exercise and all these things for the, for the men. And uh, what you learn is when you're at a meet, there are two sets of routines that you have to do. The one routine is a compulsory routine. That's what you absolutely have to do. And it's handed down to you, it's given to you by the, the uh, USA Gymnastics. They say, okay, this is what all of your gymnasts have to do. Uh, you know, floor exercise. Everybody has to do this. It's kind of boring. It's kind of like, okay, everybody has to do this. So, but you do it, you try to do it really, really well. It's kind of the, the compulsory routine, letter of the law, get out there, do that. And so you get out there and do that, whatever. And then you have the optional routines. And the optional routines is where you got to kind of put your creativity to work. This is where you got to do the stunts that you love to do and that you were really, really, really good at, right? You get out there and throw your backflips, double backflips, double twists, whatever, and, and that's what, you got to put it in whatever combination you wanted to put it in. That's where you see the excitement. That's where people really, really, really come alive. The cool thing about the experience of salvation is this. Jesus came along, and he met the compulsory requirements for you and me. 
He came in and he fulfilled the law perfectly. He did uh, the standard routine perfectly. He performed it flawlessly. He was perfect. When you're baptized, when you become a Christ follower, when you become a Christ follower, even before baptism, God gives you his spirit. And God is really, really good. God is, really, God is awesome. God says, look, I took care of the compulsory routine. And that's important. I want you to make sure that you understand that and you follow that and you do that well. But when it comes to this optional routine, man, he says, you just live well. You go out there and you do, and, and he gives us his spirit to come along, and he gives us, he gives us life through his spirit, and he says, he says, now you go out and you live well. He says, don't, don't worry about this. I've taken care of this because you couldn't anyway, but you get to live a life. So that's why Christians don't walk around all, all, all you know, sad and disappointed and discouraged and wondering whether or not Jesus has saved them. Christians can live because the Spirit of God dwells within them. And the Spirit of God says, live, but go do your thing, baby. Do it well. You fly high, you flip, you twist, you do whatever you do. I'm going to gift you in some way. You, you do that, you live it well, and you do it with a smile on your face. Because the Spirit of Almighty God lives within you. Because God has met the requirements of the compulsory routine. He says, yeah, I want you to follow that. I want you to live that. But not because you have to. Not out of obligation, but out of love. The second transition that we make in this experience of salvation is that we go from rules and law to love. Rules and law to love. Doesn't mean that we dismiss rules and law, don't get me wrong. Rules and law matter, but only as they matter in light of my love for this God who saves me. If you're only doing rules and law so that you can be saved, you're missing the point. We do rules and law because we love this God who saves us. They make sense that way. Jesus himself said, if you love me, If you love me, follow my example. If you love me, do this thing. So we've transitioned from, from rules and law to love. My whole reason for being to, to, to giving my life in service to Jesus isn't out of obligation to some rule or law. It's because I can't help but love a God who gave everything for me. I can't help but do what he wants me to do because he's done so much for me. I can't help but serve him because of the way that he served me. Here's another, um, here's another passage back in Romans now that I want to take you to. And this will help us transition to baptism, all right? Hang with me. Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. Check this out. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. That's our righteousness. That's where we, we get rid of the sin jersey. Remember sin jersey last week? I thought that was really good. 
uh, your sin jersey is removed with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. That's what the Bible says. So this is when we turn to baptism, and baptism essentially becomes this public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, of trust in Jesus Christ. Um, this is how it reads, when you, the official fundamental belief of the Seventh-day Adventist Church when it comes to baptism. It says this, I'll read through it really quickly. By baptism, we confess our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and testify of our death to sin and of our purpose to walk in newness of life. Thus, we acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior, become his people, and are received as members by his church. Baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. Catch on, to, hang on to that. The forgiveness of our sins and our reception of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we talked about that. It is by immersion in water and is contingent on an affirmation of faith in Jesus and evidence of repentance of sin and follows instruction in the Holy Scriptures and acceptance of their teachings. So basically what happens, privately you come to Christ. It could be sitting in a church service like this. It could very well be today, but privately you acknowledge and you receive Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a private declaration that then becomes a public confession of faith. And you can't help yourself. You can't help but say, this God who, I, who saves me, I want everyone to understand that I place my faith and my trust in him. I'm so sick and tired of putting my faith and trust in me and politicians and other people. I'm going to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. And so then you decide, I'm going to go, and, and, and the way I'm going to do that is, is the reality of going into the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism. So biblically, biblically, what we see in Scripture time and time again, the physical reality of baptism is that there was plenty of water. That there was a lot of water. And the person who had received Christ, so here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize. Christians get baptized. Christians get baptized. It's not that you become a Christian when you get baptized. You're already a Christian. That private declaration becomes a public confession. Then publicly you begin to say, um, through the reality of getting into a big tank of water, this is the God who I place my faith in. This is the Jesus who I love. This is the Jesus I will serve. But the examples in Scripture that we get is that there had to be lots of water because biblical baptism involves immersion. It means to be submerged. It means to be dunked. It means to be completely put underneath the water. And in a second here, we'll read another passage that helps us understand that. But here's the thing about immersion, and this is what I want you to think about and hang on to. The re part of the reason we do immersion, I think, and why Scripture shows us this example, and Jesus was baptized by immersion, is because it helps us to remember. And really, if the preacher holds you down a little bit longer, then maybe suppose you really remember that, don't you? Know? Okay. But you remember. Think about it. If you ever have lived in a foreign country and had to learn the language of that country, we call that immersion. You were in it. You were totally surrounded by it. You were covered up in it. And you learned that language because you were constantly bombarded by it. I lived in Korea for a year as a student missionary. I still remember Korean words. And if I hear people speaking 
um, and, and I can understand that it is that language, and I can pick up some of the words. The reason baptism is by immersion to a certain extent, right, is that you remember, man. You go down into that water and you're completely immersed and you, you, you then are brought back up and you are, you, 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 there's a new beginning, there's a newness of life that happens for you. So this is what Romans says. Real quick, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in his death, uh, like his, in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his, right? For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been... So basically the idea here is that um, baptism symbolizes this death, burial, and resurrection in the same way that Jesus was di died and was buried and came back to life. You, as now his follower... As a, now a, a, a proclaimer of Jesus and faith in Jesus, you follow his example. Thankfully, you don't have to die the real death. You didn't have to get hung on a cross. But the reality, the spiritual reality for you is you died. You were buried underneath the water. And you come back up and it symbolizes this new life. Interesting, in the ancient world, there are lots of um, rituals that involved water. But baptism was unique to Christians. And the big message, the big, uh, the big message that, that the disciples had, and those early followers of Jesus who, who were given the task of sharing the message of the gospel with the world, like in the book of Acts, what they, what they, the message that, they, that was the big message on their mouth was that this Jesus died and he came back to life. And the same Jesus who who, who died and came back to life will also, will also give you a new life. And when, so when, whenever, you were, whenever there was a baptism, that's what people had going on in their minds. Look at those Christians. There they go, putting people under that water again. Remember that story they've been telling? Remember that, that Jesus they've been talking about, how he went down into the grave and he came back up to life? He was buried. He was dead. Now he's alive. So every time that private declaration, that private declaration became a public confession of faith in Jesus through baptism. I'm out of time, so I got to cut off the rest of the sermon, really. <laughs> but I've said enough anyway. But I'll say this. A few weeks ago, actually probably a couple of months ago now, there's a young man. And he sat in one of those pews, and he listened to the sermon. And he said in his heart, he made that private declaration. He said, I, that Jesus that that preacher is talking about is the Jesus that I need to know. And this is a kid who, who's, you know, he's been around church a long time. He's grown up with this stuff. He had the Sabbath shoes and the Sabbath toys and didn't watch TV and all that stuff. But in that moment... God intervened in his life. He intersected 
with Jesus. And something happened in that moment, and he responded. And as soon as he was done, he went to one of our pastors. And he said, I got to get baptized. I got to get baptized. I want to baptize. It was just a couple of weeks later. We baptized him. Private declaration becomes a public confession. That's what we do around here. That's what this thing is all about. If we can present the gospel in such a way that you will hear it and, and, and you will understand it and God reveals himself to you and your life intersects and God intervenes in your life and you privately say, yeah, that's the Jesus I'm placing my faith in, we will baptize you, man. We'll talk to you a little bit to help you understand what you're getting yourself into because <laughs> that's important. But we ain't going to take too long there. We're going to baptize you. We're going to celebrate that. The new life that you will begin to live and lead. That's what it's all about. If you, if you are one that is interested in baptism, if somewhere in the last little bit of time, somewhere, I don't know, God intervened in your life and, and you're sitting there going, yeah, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. I wish they had asked me if I want to be baptized. Well, we're asking and you can do that. And you can, I think there's probably some little card or something in the pew rack behind you. Um, you know, write that, mark that, and leave it in the pew. And we'll come through and pick it up. Um, if there's nothing there, if there's not any paper there or anything, I mean, find something. Write it on the bulletin. Write it on the bulletin and leave it. Leave your information. Let us know. that You say, hey, I want to be prepared. I want to get ready to be baptized. I understand private declaration, public confession of Jesus. We'll baptize you, man. We got lots of water around here. This is Florida. We can do it. All right, we got one more song. Come on up, guys. Let's sing this last song as a celebration um, that people have come to know Jesus.